Welcome to episode 22 of China in Context. I'm Duncan Bartlett. For many centuries, artists in China have celebrated the natural world with glorious paintings of animals, birds and flowers. It's a reminder that Chinese people enjoy a close relationship with nature and inhabit one of the most biodiverse countries in the world. However, rapid industrialization and pollution have had a terrible impact on some species. Many animals have become critically endangered or even gone extinct. For example, it's been more than 10 years since a confirmed sighting of a dolphin called a baiji in the waters of the river Yangtze. In recent years, the Chinese government has been actively promoting the awareness of biodiversity protection. And China will host a major international conference on the topic in Kunming in the southwest province of Yunnan in October of 2021. Well, I'm pleased to welcome as my guest on the podcast today, Isabel Hilton, someone who has a deep understanding of China's approach to environmental issues and a knack for explaining both science and economics in a compelling way. She runs the excellent website, chinadialogue.net, which publishes analysis of environmental issues in both English and in Mandarin. Isabel, welcome to China in Context. Thank you for having me. Very good to be here. Isabel, I'd like to start with that rather sad story of the Baiji River Dolphin. It was once called the goddess of the Yangtze, suggesting that it had almost divine properties. Do you think the species is now completely extinct? Well, I'm afraid it is. The last sighting, as you said, was in 2006. There was actually a six-week expedition in 2006 to try to, to find it, and they didn't find a single one. So they were finally pronounced extinct uh, in 2007. And it, it's the first dolphin species to be driven to extinction by human beings, although the Ganges River dolphin isn't doing terribly well either. But it's pretty sobering if you think that the Baiji lived in the Yangtze for a, an estimated 50 million years. It's, it's a pretty sad story, as you say. What led to its demise then? Well, the Baiji was, was quite a, a quiet um, and a shy um, animal. And I, I'm sure you're aware that, that Chinese rivers tend to be very muddy. Um, so its eyesight wasn't its you know, primary, uh, uh, primary feature. It, it depended very much on ecolocation, um, both for you know, its own kind of social life, but also to find its prey. And as the river became busier and busier and noisier and noisier, that just became more and more difficult. So the Baiji found it harder to communicate, to navigate um, and to avoid danger. And, and that meant that the uh, population began to crash. Then there was pollution. And then finally, there, there was the massive Three Gorges Dam, which changed the way the river behaved. It changed the whole ecology of the river. And that seems to have been the last uh, straw for, for the poor Baiji, and, and it went extinct. Well, it sounds like it was the result of a series of consequences of human behaviour then. When I think of China and environmental problems, the first thing which normally comes to my mind is the dark and dirty skies over the big cities, which, of course, caused people to have quite a lot of difficulty in breathing. 
What do you see as the most pressing issues, particularly in relation to the natural world and biodiversity? Well, it's pretty hard to choose, actually. China has such a range of, of environmental problems. It did have the world's biggest, fastest, and in many ways, dirtiest industrial revolution uh, because it was fueled by coal. And coal was primarily responsible for both the appalling air quality in Chinese cities and the climate impacts. And of course, climate change and industrial development affects biodiversity directly. And almost everywhere you look, you know, there are problems. There are problems because China's model of development really didn't take nature into account and, and development was very poorly regulated. So there was a huge push to build infrastructure at all costs. There was very rapid urbanization. Um, and there was huge water extraction and pollution because of the rapid development of, of industrial sectors around China's waterways, particularly its lakes and rivers. So China's mother river, the, the, the Yellow River, actually failed to reach the sea at one point, which was a bit of a wake up call and highlighted the fact that North China is extremely chronically short of water. The huge amount of development that has taken place in North China, of course, has made that worse. So you have over extraction of groundwater, you have all the rivers under stress, smaller rivers and lakes have just disappeared. And this is a, a, a chronic problem, uh, which China rather belatedly began to address by beginning to look after their riverine ecosystems. So this combination of problems, which included deforestation at the headwaters, so you know the flow of the river was diminished and then unregulated extraction did the rest. China's beginning to get its river management you know, more under control. Um, there, are, there is a legacy of chronic pollution, which is going to be very difficult to address. Air pollution is relatively easy to address. It's not easy, but, it, but it's technically doable. Soil pollution is much, much harder, and China has an enormous soil pollution problem, already has very little really functioning arable land because so much has been developed, and that which it has suffers, uh, again, from, from soil pollution, which is both expensive and technically difficult. So really, there's, there's a lot um, that China has to cope with. And um, on the upside, in preparation for the the COP, which you mentioned, the, the um, Convention on Biological Diversity Conference of the Parties, the 15th Conference of the Parties, to give it its full title, which China is hosting. Uh, China has begun to showcase its own efforts to redress the balance against nature. So it has drawn what it calls ecological red lines around quite substantial uh, proportion of its territory and within those red lines, um, development is not uh, permitted or certain kinds of development are not permitted. And this is designed to allow nature to regenerate, if you like. It, it'll be quite a long business, but at least it's begun. When I read through the Chinese state media in English, I often come across articles which contain very positive messages about the great work which is being done by the Communist Party at a national and a local level, um, and, uh, particularly in terms of raising awareness of environmental issues and biodiversity. So this is something which is clearly high on the education agenda. And yet it also seems to me as though many companies and individuals 
are really not following the party line. They still seem to be behaving in ways which cause pollution to the soil or to the air or to the water. Are they out of control? Well, out of control might be one description. Uh, it's certainly one end of the spectrum. Um, but I think what we're seeing in China is a rather prolonged effort by the state to try to bring uh, rogue entities or, in fact, you know, what was until relatively recently pretty normal behavior um, under control. And you're certainly right that the kind of effective regulation that China is going to need to restore its, its environmental services has, has a long way to go. Everyone was focused on very rapid GDP growth, and that was what mattered. That was what uh, bureaucrats were judged on. That's what you know, provincial leaders were trying, to, were trying to do. That's what the national targets said they must do. So bureaucrats at every level have a whole series of, of um, uh, goals that they have to meet and their performance and their promotion depends on whether they meet those goals. And so you have GDP growth, you have keeping social peace, you have all kinds of, of goals and you did have environmental goals, but they were very uh, low weighted in the, in the general sum. So if you didn't meet your growth um, target for, for your local economy, you got a black mark. If you made a terrible mess of the environment whilst meeting that growth target, the chances are that you would be somewhere else in five or 10 years by the time the full horror was discovered and it wouldn't affect your career path at all. I can see this is going to be a situation where there's likely to be conflicting interests, surely. Um, let's talk then about China's goal to become carbon neutral. President Xi made that announcement in September 2020. He said that China would reach peak carbon emissions by 2030, 10 years hence, and then aim to become net zero by 2060. Well, that must be a huge step in tackling climate change. Can you say something about what you see as being the implications, particularly for biodiversity? We do understand now that we are in a climate crisis. We're also in the middle of a mass extinction. And that extinction is being driven by a whole spectrum of things of, you know, essentially by the unsustainable economic practices that, that we have pursued in pursuit of growth. So what you're seeing in China is the effort to turn the tank around, both on climate and on biodiversity, and the two are related. Um, I think though that it, we're unlikely to see an immediate effect of China's climate targets on biodiversity. In the long run, what you would hope for is that the economic and industrial model would be adjusted to take greater account of nature. I want to draw the conversation more or less to a close, but we've touched a couple of times while we've been speaking about this big event which is due to happen in China in October, uh, the 15th meeting of the Conference of the Parties to the Convention of Biological Diversity. It's a long title, COP15 it's being called. This is a forum in which many nations are going to address biodiversity protection. What message is China trying to send by holding this event? Well, I think China is uh, trying to position itself as a global leader across a pretty wide spectrum of issues, um, including uh, everything to do with the United Nations. Uh, 
And the Convention on Biodiversity has been rather a poor relation of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. They both came out of the first uh, Rio conference. But biodiversity has never had quite the same degree of attention and commitment as climate change. After all, if you look at climate change, we're at COP26 in Glasgow, that's the 26th conference of the parties, and, and we're only at the 15th conference of the parties on biodiversity. So, so parties are met less often, and frankly, uh, to much less effect. Um, but 10 years ago, a set of targets were set uh, for this convention, uh, which included an end to extinctions. Um, all of those targets have been missed. And the importance of this particular conference is that it is the moment when a new framework and a new set of targets and then new effective mechanisms have to be agreed. And ideally they would be agreed with, with strong reference to the climate change conference uh, just a, a couple of months later, because as we've discussed, the two are interrelated. Now to get everybody's, uh, everybody's um, ambitions and capacities aligned, takes extremely active diplomacy and extremely active leadership. And we have seen this, we've learned from the failures in climate conferences like Copenhagen and the successes like Paris. We know what it takes in terms of proactive diplomacy. Unfortunately, China for all its size and importance in the world, really doesn't have that kind of experience. It doesn't really do that kind of diplomacy. It prefers bilateral diplomacy where it's always the biggest party. Uh, you know, it, it will throw its, its uh, weight behind something when it needs to, but it's very, very rarely proactive and out in the lead. And this is a moment when the Convention on Biological Diversity needs that leadership. So I'm afraid that whilst China wants to demonstrate that it is a big player, that it can host meetings like this, what it hasn't really done is the kind of uh, active preparation, lining up everybody's interests, the kind of mixture of, of, of coaxing and coercion that it takes to get everybody uh, in on the same page. So I'm afraid the result is going to be a little disappointing and it's going to be rather a missed opportunity. Well, thank you, Isabel. I hope you'll come back after that conference has taken place and give us your appraisal. That was Isabel Hilton, Senior Advisor to ChinaDialogue.net. This podcast is produced by the SOAS China Institute, and you can find out more about our activities, including our latest courses and research, on our website. The website is SOAS, that's S-O-A-S dot A-C dot U-K. Alternatively, you can type SOAS China Institute into a search engine and it should pop up straight away. But until next time, that's all from us here on the China in Context podcast team. <laughs>